0: Today's scripture reading is found uh, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 14 through to 18. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you, who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we begin, I just want to start first with some prayer. so uh, please pray with me. Uh, Father, we come before you uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, Lord, who has reconciled us to you, and who's reconciled us to one another, uh, who's given us uh, his spirit, Father, uh, your spirit um, of love, that we would have your love poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And we ask right now that you would change us, that as we look at your word, as we Consider the topic we have today, uh, that we wouldn't leave this place without having been changed by your word and by the Holy Spirit working in us for your glory. We ask that you would exalt Jesus in our midst right now, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. So good morning, Christ City. My name's Brant. I'm one of the team members here, if you haven't met me before. And I'm just really excited to to share with you God's word this morning. If you're a guest here this morning, I just want to welcome you. Welcome! It's great to have you with us. We're excited to have you here. And for your information, we've been going through the book of Galatians for the last several weeks here at Christ City Kits Alano. And our usual method of walking through uh, sermons, a sermon series, is to take a book of the Bible and to start examining certain texts. But if you imagine our walk through the book of Galatians like a journey, then you can recognize that that we sometimes, like you do on a journey, have made certain layovers or stopovers that we've planned along the way as we've walked through the book of Galatians. We've done that a few times already. We've, We've taken some of the themes of the book as we've been going through, and we stopped and we preached a sermon on false gospels. And then a few weeks later, as we walked through the passages of Scripture, we came to a, a portion talking about the poor, and we took the opportunity to have a little a little layover in our journey through Galatians to discuss the church's relationship with the poor, both within the church but also outside of the church. What does that look like? And today, um, our, our sermon series takes another stopover. This is our third layover in our journey through the book of Galatians. And if you have one of those Galatian booklets that we've made for the community groups, then you, you can see, as you walk through the, the outline for the sermon series, you can see that the sermon today is actually titled, The Gospel and Your Former Ties. Racism and Classism Exposed. So if you're wondering if you could really get some more hot-button topics here at Christ City, welcome. It's obviously a huge topic and we're going to get into it today with a distinct focus of trying to understand what does the bible have to say about this issue and if you're a visitor here or maybe you're you're not that familiar with christianity or maybe you are you're skeptical of christianity you're probably thinking to yourself why would you open the bible to study this topic what place does the bible have in helping us think about racial issues uh, conflicts and class conflicts well here's the thing here at christ city church as a group of christians we believe that the bible is the word of god and not just any god the only all-knowing all-powerful author of truth who is both personal and good and that he has revealed to us his truth and his word And if there is anywhere that we can find an answer to how to deal with our racial conflicts, with our class conflicts, with disunity, it's by looking to what he has said who made us. So we've got a lot of work to do this morning. And uh, I know this intro is a little bit unusual for the pattern that I usually do, but we're going to keep it unusual and we're going to just give the outline right now and then we're going to jump into it. So we're going to jump into this text, jump into this idea Uh, exploring these problems and our outline will be this just three points unity frustrated unity accomplished and unity applied unity frustrated accomplished and applied We're going to look together now at that first point, unity, frustrated, to kind of take a look at the conflict that's existing in this world and familiarize ourselves ourselves with the problems so we can see the solution the Bible gives. So when we consider the issues of racism and classism, we are acknowledging right out of the gate that there's a problem, right? To even talk about it is to talk about the reality of a problem, but we only see a problem in anywhere, in any sphere in our lives, if we compare the problem to some kind of a solution, if we compare the problem to some kind of an ideal that we might have. So the question for us here is, if this is a problem, what's the ideal that we are comparing it to? What's the backdrop? It's this. The goal or the ideal against which we see the problem of racism and division in our culture is unity in diversity, E pluribus unum in the United States Constitution. And of course, in the United States, they've made an effort to have unity and diversity, and they they talk about the melting pot, right? There's an effort to, to have unity and diversity through a particular method, and this melting pot metaphor for the way that they have come together as a country. And here in Canada, we do something a little bit different. We have the cultural mosaic, right, in Canada. But notice that both in the States and here in Canada, there is one melting pot there is one mosaic made up together of their constituent parts because we recognize that the goal is the same even though the methodology is a little bit different the goal is unity in diversity and unity in diversity is after all an understandable goal it's of utmost importance to civilization and to human flourishing and actually there's a man named michael novak He's like the Catholic philosopher and diplomat. And he said, he said this. He said, unity and diversity is the highest possible attainment of a civilization. A testimony to the most, uh, sorry, a testimony to the most noble possibilities of the human race. This attainment is made possible through passionate concern for choice. So there's the diversity in an atmosphere of social social trust. Social trust is an interesting word, isn't it? we got a lot of that today, I think, right? But maybe maybe the drive for unity is not something that you relate to. Maybe this is all too philosophical. You don't bother yourselves with the political concerns, the sociological concerns, and you think, you know, I just want to get by in my life and not be bothered. What's the big deal, Brand? Well, if that's you, then you should at least know that unity and diversity is profoundly practical. Consider the words of Franklin D. Roosevelt. He said, If civilization is to survive... We must cultivate the science of human relationships, the ability of all peoples of all kinds to live together in the same world at peace. FDR. The reality is, our very survival and certainly our prosperity depends on us figuring out how to live in this world and not to kill one another. And given the fact that the last 150 years or so of human history have been the most bloody of all of human history, we realize the need. There's a deep need for us to sort out how can we be united in our diversity. So that's the ideal, unity and diversity. And the question is, how are we doing? How are we doing? Not well. Arguably, the West has not become more united, I think, but but less as it has devolved into various tribalism, and political polarization and galvanization uh, over the last couple decades or so. Uh, for example, we live in a Western world where a populist uprising is is on the on the increase. Right? And this populized populist, populist uprising is kind of happening against this incumbent globalist perspective or worldview. You have people like The Trumps of the world and the Boris Johnsons and even, to a certain extent, the Theresa Mays and the Maxine Bernier's People's Party of Canada that's just recently been happening here. Politics are increasingly divided. And polarization and tribalism and hostility, they seem to be the norm and even increasing in Canada, I think, and even in Vancouver. But that's just politics. There's clearly a division, clearly a lack of unity there. But what about What about racial tensions in Vancouver? What about racial tensions here in our city? If we rely on just a standard definition of racism, I'm sorry I didn't put it on a slide, I should have, um, it's this. The normal definition of racism is just prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. Do we... Or does anybody you know think of themselves as superior in Vancouver, racially? For a nation determined to be united as a cultural mosaic, how well are we doing? Do we feel racially superior here in Vancouver in any way? And on the one hand, if we want to feel good about ourselves, we can certainly compare Vancouver to other places in the world, right? And we can say, okay, we might be doing better than some. But on the other hand, when we take a close look at ourselves, racial division and antagonism, I think it's still evident here in Vancouver too. How often do you hear of or experience or feel resentment toward other ethnic groups uh, here in Vancouver? Have you personally ever been told to go back home? Have you ever experienced racial slurs or heard them said or even maybe uttered them? Or racial joking? Derogatory joking? Have you had friends that are close to you that have had this happen to them? Is there any antagonism in Vancouver over foreign investment? Is there any antagonism toward Indian or Arab or Muslim or African minority groups here in the city? Is there any antagonism toward First Nations groups? Is there any antagonism among the racial minority groups towards the racial majority groups, where those who are in the minority look at the Caucasian majority and are are, are racially prejudiced against them or haven't taken towards them of any kind. We certainly aren't the United States. We aren't Syria. We aren't South Sudan. And our racial tensions look different than other countries do. But we still have racial tensions in Canada. And what we need to realize is that we might have a difference in quality. We don't have a difference in kind. It's the same species that comes from the human heart that we contend with every day in Vancouver. And where there are tensions, we need to remind ourselves that sometimes they erupt in bloodshed. And if you if you think that's not the case, just remember that there was an anti-Semitic shooting and murder uh, in Pittsburgh just a week and a half ago. And we'd be naive to think that our differences and our tensions aren't ripe with animus. And that even at the extreme end of that animus, historically has been genocide. And we'd be naive, I think, if we claim that genocide won't happen again in human history. Jews and Nazis, Albanians and Serb- Serbians, pogroms in Russia, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, the Rohingya in Myanmar, socialists versus fascists, Indian and Pakistani, the ongoing civil war in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, those of European descent in the last couple hundred years against the First Nation groups in North America, Yazidis in Syria and Iraq, and many other examples all show us that the, murder, the murderous extreme edge of our hostility towards one another is bloodshed, and it's not, it's not far from the human heart. Even if we feel like this is a fairy tale because we haven't experienced it. I assure you that it's not a fairy tale. And the quest for unity in diversity, it's just, it's not new, is it? It's something that throughout history we've tried to resolve through social movements and political innovation in all manner of different engagement. But in the end, especially when we look at this wide-angle lens from 30,000 feet at the long view of human history and the problems facing us, our world doesn't look like the world of Michael Novak's highest attainment of civilization, living in unity and diversity. We don't live in an atmosphere that's full of social trust right now. We live in an atmosphere of disunity, and nothing has worked. And oftentimes, I think even our efforts to resolve these differences, right, our efforts to stop the wars, to stop the violence, have actually led to more wars and to more violence. Is that not the case? Look at the Middle East, and surely you'll see that. And the question for us this morning is, given such an environment, does the Bible have anything to say to us? Does the Bible speak A word of encouragement and hope in a world of darkness and disunity and despair and hatred. It does. It absolutely does. Look with me at our second point. Unity accomplished. The Bible, it frames our struggle to attain unity and diversity within the movements of redemption. Within the movements of creation, fall, and redemption through Jesus Christ. So right now, in this section, we're going to take a look briefly at those movements of redemption to see what God has done. We're going to start with the first movement, creation. In the book of Genesis, which is the very first book of the Bible, we're taught something about humankind that is unique in human history. And that provides us with the only suitable foundation for real unity and diversity. Look at this. Look at the Bible in Genesis one twenty seven. It says that all of us as humankind are made in the image and likeness of God. Genesis one twenty seven says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All of us uniquely bearing the image of God as humankind. And the clear teaching of the Bible is that Everybody on the planet has the same inherent value and worth because everyone on the planet is a human being who's been made in the image of God. Not because of their shared wealth, not because of their shared ethnicity, not because of their shared political viewpoints, viewpoints but because they bear the image of their creator on them. That's what makes them valuable. That's what provides the, the backbone for the possibility of unity and diversity. Martin Luther King Jr., who had a thing or two, I think, to say about unity and diversity, he understood how important the book of Genesis is to our own thinking and conceptions about unity and humankind. He said this. He said, There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we will learn that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and the worth of every man. So don't be deceived. Even before we get to the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ, just in the creation story itself, we have something that's uniquely able to support the reality of unity and diversity from the Bible. Don't be deceived. Today, we live in Vancouver. Right? We live in part of the Western world, and the Western world has largely adopted this Christian idea, with the exception of the unborn. But we live in a world that likes to recognize that, that, yes, as human beings, we are all valuable. We have an inherent worth. We have equality. That, make no mistake, is a biblical idea. It's come from Scripture. So if that's the case, why can't we find unity in our diversity. If we are those who are made in the image of God, right, shouldn't it be a slam dunk? Well, let's consider the next step in the storyline of the Bible, the fall. And if you're new here, you're new to the ideas of Christianity, the fall is just a word that Christians use to describe the way that human beings didn't live perfectly in that relationship with God in creation, that we rebelled against him. So let's look at the fall together and see what that looks like. So because humankind, beginning with the first humans, beginning with Adam and Eve, have rebelled against the rule of our good God, and turning away from him, we've been plunged into a depth of disunity and all manner of hostility towards one another and towards him. And to be crystal clear, the Bible doesn't say that, that that hostility comes from outside of us. It doesn't come from outside. It doesn't come from various oppressive powers that are solely responsible for disunity in this world, though the Bible clearly recognizes that there are such things as oppressive and awful powers. The Bible claims that it comes, that hostility and disunity comes from our own human hearts. Because contrary to a conception of humankind that that looks at humanity and says, we are all good. We just need to educate ourselves into being a little bit more virtuous. The Bible says something different. The Bible claims that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart, as has been said here over and over and over again from this pulpit. And what the human heart does with diversity is to let it fester and to irritate and to become infected with bitterness. And that bitterness grows into hatred. And that hatred erupts inevitably in human history into violence. And if you view history, I think, honestly, it's hard to come to any other conclusion than this, that the problem is us. The problem is us, is our own human hearts. And that leads us to the third movement of the Bible story, redemption, which is the story of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And it's after Halloween, so I think that we can talk about Christmas here without hostility from you guys. Right? I won't force you to listen to Christmas music if you're one of those December-only people. Although I I did listen to some good Christmas music this morning as I was uh, preparing and coming here. It was great. I love it. I can't get enough. But what we see in this third movement of God's plan of redemption is that unity is only accomplished by the coming of Jesus Christ, who is the prince of what? Of peace. The prince of peace. So we're going to take a look now together at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18, to see what the Prince of Peace, what Jesus Christ has done to bring about peace on earth. And I read this passage last week. We just kind of briefly went over it, but I'd like to take a much closer look at it now together. Notice in particular the themes of hostility and peace. I've italicized them for you. For he, it's Jesus, himself is our peace. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's the good news of the gospel. And what this passage shows us is that we don't just have a disunity problem, though. It shows us that we have a hostility problem. And what this passage shows us is that it's actually worse than just simply a hostility problem. We have a hostility problem on a horizontal plane and on a vertical plane. We have a hostility squared problem. And to illustrate this, imagine a triangle where you and and any other given human being are the two bottom points on that triangle. And the line between you and the other human being represent the hostility that exists in disunity in humankind. And then imagine that that the vertical lines of that triangle is the hostility that both you and your enemy here on earth have with God. And then God is the highest point on that triangle. What Jesus does when this passage teaches us is that Jesus deals with our horizontal hostility towards one another by uniting us to himself and lifting us up the vertical lines of that triangle till all together we are reconciled with God and brought back into relationship with him. So look again at verse 16 of Ephesians 2 to see this. Jesus died on the cross so that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. Hear this. Jesus is a Savior who killed the hostility between us and our fellow man, between us and God, by being killed for us in our place. By faith we are in one body, in Christ, reconciled vertically with God as the punishment for our sin and the hostility between us and God— is resolved through Jesus' sacrifice for us on a cross. But Jesus' sacrifice reconciles us to one another as well. Not just the vertical parts resolved, but the horizontal hostility as well. Look at verse 14. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So to be clear, this is talking about not the hostility between us and God now, but the hostility between us and our fellow man. And this dividing wall of hostility, that's kind of an obscure reference, isn't it? What's he talking about there? Well, it's, it's a reference to the hostility that existed in biblical times between Jew and Gentile. And that hostility between Jew and Gentile came to represent later uh, in the history of the church, the hostility between us and our fellow man in general. But what it, in its immediate context, represents is that in the Old Testament Jewish temple, there was a reminder of hostility between different people groups that was literal and in your face, existing as a wall that segregated Gentiles from the Jews as they came to worship God. Very clear division and separation that was there. But the dividing wall of hostility, that horizontal line of hostility, is resolved because all of us together, Jew and Gentile and everyone else who are Christians, have been joined into the one new man have been joined by faith and redeemed into the image of God in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that's between Jew and Gentile. And also then take a look at the last half of verse 15. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. One new man in place of all the division. One new man in place of all the hostility, and so making peace. And now look at verses 17 to 18. Look at the result. This is this is gospel good news for us today. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off. And he preached peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father the beauty of the gospel is that that no matter who you are, no matter whether you're from a culture that's close to Christianity or a culture that's far from Christianity, in Jesus, you've been reconciled to God and to one another through the gospel as you've been joined in him as his sacrifice counts for yours. And remember how I said the heart of the human problem of disunity is the problem of the human heart? Well, now, because of Jesus, where there used to be hostility on both the horizontal and the vertical planes, there's only love. Because our hearts, formerly separated from from God and separated from one another, are united through Jesus with God, who is love. So that his Holy Spirit is poured out into our hearts. His love is poured into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. And we are able to live in a relationship of love with him. And to share that relationship of love and of reconciliation with those around us. That is the good news of the gospel. And only this gospel can account for the radical differences of humankind and yet still unite those differences in one body, in Jesus Christ, without destroying the distinction and the diversity. So that unity and diversity exist together as hostility is killed and love remains. So as an illustration of this, unity and diversity through the gospel, I remember one time uh, when I was in my teens being on a mission trip in Zambia. And one of the highlights of that trip that I still like to think about when we were in Zambia together was going to, going to a church there and, and worshiping with the native Zambian Christians. I mean, it was, it was awesome. When we get together, we're coming into this tiny church building in a little village. And it's pretty clear as the music begins, as the worship begins, that I'm not in Canada anymore right? This is different. Uh, For one, they can sing well, right? Their harmonies are amazing. You know, their rhythm is incredible. And they get together, and they start dancing and praise to Jesus. And they, they form these neat little lines, very orderly, as they're dancing around the inside of the church building. And the two Mennonite guys that I'm with, they're worshiping like this, They're not even moving. They are the rocks and the sea and the river of Zambian worship. But you know what? I don't doubt for a moment the sincerity of their worship either. And in that moment, I think it was more than apparent that that those two Mennonite men from the valley, they couldn't be more different than their Zambian brothers and sisters. But all together, we were united in Jesus Christ to worship God together. I know you guys have had experiences like this one. You know, I've traveled the world a little bit. I've been in Singapore and India and Dubai. And I've seen this everywhere I've been. One of the best places was in Dubai where we got together as a group of Christians where 60 different nations were gathered together under one roof. Maintaining the cultural diversity in Dubai is easy because there are all these little groups that you're part of. All together, diverse, but worshiping in unity the same Lord. It was awesome. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of what we have in Christ. We certainly aren't perfect in the church, but we serve a perfect Lord. And his love is seen and is at work even through our sin in our churches. You know why? Because it's what he set out to accomplish and it's what he prayed for. Look at John seventeen twenty to 23 in the way that Jesus prayed for our unity. He said, I do not ask for these only, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. I want to pause for a second. I don't have this in my notes, but if you're someone here who today feels a discouragement and a burden of guilt, you just feel the weight of your sin, you hear these words from Jesus, that the Father has loved you even as he has loved his Son in Christ. That's your hope. That's the love that's been poured into your heart that now you are able to give to those around you. So how do we live this out? How do we actually take the principles of our reconciliation together in Christ? This is lofty stuff. And how do we apply it? Let's look together at our final point here. Unity applied. Well, the first step, I think, is simply to live out the implications of the gospel. To let the implications and the truth of the gospel land on you hard. Because what we're talking about here is ultimately a love issue. So here's the question. Are we willing to love as we have been loved? Are we willing to show a humble kindness toward those both inside the church, but also outside of it because of the love that we have received? The heart of the human problem of unity and diversity is the problem of the human heart, but the solution to the problem of the human heart is the unity that we have together in the heart of God. The principle here is simple. If you've been loved in Christ, you have an obligation to show that love by the Spirit within you to others. 1 John 3.14 says it very, very simply. It says, We know that we have passed out of death, passed out of living apart from God, into life, living with God, into salvation. How do we know that? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. That's, that's a strong word this morning. The strong word given that we know from 1 John that when he talks about love, he's clear that he's not just talking about platitudes. He's talking about a heart that's been changed by God that's backed up with actions. And he's saying here that not loving is proof of not being reconciled with God. So let's get really concrete here. In a sermon like this one, it's helpful, I think, to try to expose the sin in our hearts and to see the sin that we're prone to, to examine the way that we live in this city to see how can we repent of this? How can we repent of all the ways that I don't do this and that you don't do this in our day-to-day lives? So here's some questions to help us. You might struggle with living out the implications of the gospel. You might struggle with showing true unity in Christ if you answer yes to some of these. Are you this morning a second, third-generation Hong Kong immigrant? Are you tolerant and kind toward the recent influx of mainland Chinese immigrants, remembering the kindness of God expressed to you? Are you white Canadian from the valley? Are you tolerant towards your Indo-Canadian neighbors? Are you loving toward them, seeking opportunities to share Jesus with them as he has shared his love with you? Are you a Vancouverite who's been here for years and has watched the city change? Watched your neighborhoods that you grew up in change? Are you gracious and loving towards those who are coming? Or do you see their arrival as an opportunity for gospel witness? Or do you see their arrival as an obstacle to be overcome? Have you immigrant or descendant of immigrants become embittered toward First Nations peoples? and the justice, the justice that they're seeking? Have you allowed policies that you may or you may not disagree with start to embitter you towards them and not to reach out towards them and seek reconciliation and love that is in keeping with the gospel to a, a whole community of people that need to hear about Jesus, need to know his love? Or have you, whoever you are, begun to feel superior in your hearts towards other people in this city? Do you think that your class, or your education, or your ethnicity is simply better than the ones of the peoples around you? Have you forgotten that God has given you everything that you have? Not because you deserve it, but because of his grace and his mercy in Jesus. Do you resent those who propagate maybe a different political agenda than yours? Have you started to think of them now as the enemies that you are fighting against? Have you let their differences in opinions become something that spurs you on to hatred in your heart towards them? How would you feel if the dominant secondary culture in this church moved from white to Chinese or Japanese? or First Nation, or African, or hipster, or older people, or younger people, or people who maybe have wronged the people of your ethnic heritage. If you would be greatly bothered by that, ask yourself if the reason is because you value your own culture and preferences more than you value unity together in Jesus. Are you willing to love those who are poorer than you? Are you willing to love those who are richer than you? After the gathering do you tend to, to go find people who are like you and talk to them? or do you reach out in our diversity and unity to somebody else who's different than you vastly different than you but who who knows Jesus just as you do? Do you show a humility of being willing to learn from others? To recognize that, that our new humanity in Jesus is made up from people of every race and every background, recognizing that they have something to teach you in Christ. You know, these questions convict me. I hope they convict you too. I think we need to repent. We need, we need to love and to work hard at loving as we have been loved. And maybe you hear all of this, but you're protesting in your heart, and you're thinking, how could I possibly do that? How can I love them? I might get hurt. I might suffer loss. If I open myself up to them, I will lose what I cherish most dearly. I'll lose my neighborhood looking the way that I really want it to look. Or I'll lose my sense of safety. Or I'll lose my sense of a monolithic culture that I'm really comfortable in. Or I'll lose my privacy. Or I'll lose my preferred food or music or whatever else or my perceived right to hostility. Hostility respond with hostility towards those who respond with hostility towards me. It's true. You will suffer loss by loving others who are different than you. But only if your hope is set here. Only if your hope is based in Vancouver rather than in God. If your goal is to maintain a community that suits your preferences and relationships that don't challenge you, and stability, even family stability, doesn't jeopardize your norms, you won't be able to love as you have been loved. Your preferences will keep you from it. Because whenever you see somebody and encounter somebody whose preferences challenge your own, you'll feel threatened. But if you're grounded in the gospel of unity in Christ, and your hope isn't in Vancouver or in this neighborhood— it's in the coming city, it's in Jesus, it's in who you are in him, then you're free to love sacrificially as you have been loved. You're free to to lose whatever it might cost you to live and to look like Jesus, to share the love that he's given you, to bear witness to his gospel with your actions as someone that's been transformed by the love of Christ. I just want to end with the words of the Prince of Peace that we already read in John 17, verses 20 to 21, as he prays for us, I want to invite you to pray along with him for us this same prayer that we would be one as he and the Father and the Spirit are one. Jesus says this I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Again, this is missional. This is about shining the light of God's redemption where we are here in Vancouver. May we be a light to what God is doing in his church here at Christ City Kitsilano. Would you pray with me? Father, we uh, we have much to repent of, uh, Father, I think that oftentimes we, we're arrogant as Vancouverites, thinking that we don't have problems here. Uh, we think that we don't have an issue with segregation or, or race or hostility, um, but we're looking at surface things. Father, we're not looking at our hearts. Uh, we just ask you right now to do a deep work by your gospel to cause us to be those who love, as we have been loved. To consider that Jesus Christ, perfectly happy in unity with with you and the Spirit left heaven and came to earth to suffer and die that we might be saved. Help us to to not hold on to anything so tightly that that we can't do that and reach across cultural or different lines of diversity to to show the love of Jesus that we've been been shown. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.